Welcome, everyone. I think we'll go ahead and get, get started. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming to another installment of Norris uh, Cotton Cancer Center uh, Grand Rounds. I want to welcome uh, everyone who's watching uh, remotely and then uh, uh, fulfill our GME requirements um, um, by um, reading the following statement. We're uh, really privileged today to have uh, Patrick Lower here from Indiana University, and Dr. Lower does not have any financial interests related to his presentation. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device and is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect uh, to this activity. And credit, again, we'll have the, um, the text code room after um, the presentation. So it's such a, a pleasure to introduce uh, uh, Patrick, um, who's visiting uh, today um, from um, uh, Indiana, where he is uh, the D.H. Gregg Professor in Oncology, uh, Director of the Simon Cancer Center there, and Associate uh, Dean for Cancer Research. So um, Patrick, um, uh, did he's a boiler maker. Um, he did his uh, undergraduate work at Purdue. Um, and then went to Rush Medical College, uh, where he stayed on to train in internal medicine before uh, coming to Indiana uh, to do his fellowship in uh, medical oncology and uh, really joined a department of medical oncology there that literally wrote the book on, um, on the treatment of germ cell tumors, testicular uh, tumors, um, and um, Patrick has gone on to dramatically extend that book and contribute a huge amount of uh, our current knowledge in that um, area. He's published over uh, 250 publications with a focus on, on germ cell tumors and, and, and thymomas. Um, he's served um, in multiple positions on all the prestigious societies in medicine and oncology. He's been um, on the board of uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine. He's been on the board of directors of the American Society for Clinical Oncology, as well as ASCO's Academic Global Oncology uh, Task Force. Force. But his most important contributions uh, lie outside of medical oncology and extend to three amazing uh, children, uh, one of whom, Andrew, uh, joined our uh, surgical oncology team uh, last year. So we thank you for all of your contributions, intellectual and genetic, um, um, and, um, and want to welcome you today. It's Patrick's first visit um, to uh, the Upper Valley, at least in the last 20 years, uh, and he's enjoyed a dinner, a visit with with Andrew and, and, and his wife, but also dinner at Simon Pierce and, and an evening sugaring um, at the Barth residence um, up, up off of uh, Lime, Lime, Lime Road. So um, he's had a great Upper Valley experience. So uh, with that, we'll, we'll welcome uh, you, Patrick, and look forward to your talk. Thanks for the wonderful invitation. This is such a... Um joy for me to be here, and uh, I've never had our kids be a conflict of interest before, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's properly true. But uh, the difference between Indiana and here, we, have, uh, we do have snow there, um, um, but when it melts, I mean, it just literally melted the other day for like five minutes, and people were out running and jogging and riding bicycles, and uh, in Indiana, we wait until like... February, you know, we wait from February until maybe October before we decide to go out and ride bikes, and, and you guys are doing it as soon as the sun is there. It's extraordinary, and what a it was. Anyway, it's been a great visit, and I want to thank all of you for this. So, what I wanted to do today is basically give a uh, opportunity, just to give a presentation, if you will, a point of view about global oncology, which is uh, 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 an area of interest of mine uh, in Indiana University, but it is also an area of interest here at, at, at Dartmouth, and so. I uh, wanted to at least give a presentation and see if we can uh, institute some thought and discussion afterwards. The outline of my talk is here. I'm going to basically give a very brief overview on global health. I'm going to talk about HIV AIDS and the birth of what we call the AMPATH program and then leaning in then to cancer and what we have done in terms of uh, developing a program in Western Kenya and, and then finally talk a little bit about the, the future of global oncology as far as, as I see it and hopefully as you see it. So let's start initially with this definition of global health. So uh, this was defined a few years ago. Global health is an area for study, research, and practice that 
places a priority on improving health and achieving equity in health for all people worldwide. Um, this to be distinguished from international health, if you will, in which we happen to be traveling to another country and working with them. This really has to do with health equities, health disparities that's in our own backyard as well as ar around the globe. Um, and, and global health emphasizes uh, a few different factors, transnational health issues, determinants and solutions that uh, it typically involves disciplines beyond the health sciences. It may include engineering and health and economics and ethics. It truly promotes interdisciplinary collaboration. And it, as we deal with in cancer centers, it really is a synthesis of population-based health prevention, working with individual health care in terms of how it may then transcend into the population health. Uh, I took this from your website, and I think this is a good definition, too. Uh, mainly because it starts with Dartmouth. Um, but this comes from here, that Global Health Initiative at Dartmouth is a Dartmouth-wide program dedicated to improving the health of the world's population through multidisciplinary research, education, and service. The GHI brings together Dartmouth schools and departments and a network of partners around the world to pursue solutions to critical challenges in global health while training the next generation of global health leaders. This is really a great position statements. Did you write this, Kathy, or no? Who wrote this? Did anybody take ownership of this? Linda, Linda did? It's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's much better than what this other guy got a paper out of. It was extraordinary. Now, Francis Collins, I think, for, I think actually spun it a little differently. I think his words are incredibly important for any of us who are thinking about involving ourselves in global health. He says that, that global health research should be a conversation with other countries, not in one in which the great United States tells the world what the answers are without listening to and learning from other people's experiences. It really, if you're really going to be involved in global health, it really comes with the verb listening and, and paying attention to it. So what I'd like to do is to start this. I forgot. I apologize. I didn't have my microphone turned on, I don't think. What I'd like to do is start this in terms of explaining basically my journey, if you will, in terms of uh, global health. And it starts here in, in Western Kenya, uh, which is part of Africa. Um, and, and when we look at the distinction between Kenya and the United States, it's, it's quite stark. There's about 40 million people that are in Kenya. The United States has around 300 million people. The gross annual income in Kenya is around 800 bucks a year compared to around 50,000 a year. The infant mortality rate is strikingly higher in Kenya. The life expectancy back when this was done back in the World Bank in 2009 was around 54 years of age compared to around 80 years here. Uh, so many different differences between the things in terms of out-of-pocket expenditures for healthcare. Uh, again, this is out-of-pocket. Without insurance, it was uh, much greater for people in Kenya compared to the United States. This is the framework of the differences in terms of between the two countries. Our partnership in Indiana University began uh, many years ago in the uh, late 1990s when Bob Einturns, who was uh, the associate head of global health, and Joe Mamlin and Charlie Kelly and another fellow, got together looking around the globe where they could establish partnerships, and they came upon more university. Uh, now, Moore University was a brand-new medical school that was just designed. In fact, Moore University at the time they met was composed of one person, Professor Mengish, who is now declared dean of the school that didn't exist. And so these guys got together, and, and it's, it became the second-largest public and referral hospital in Kenya. It serves the western part of the country, which is about 20 million of the 40 million people in Kenya. Uh, its partner, if you will, is this Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital, which, uh, uh, in, as you look at the numbers here, I want you to notice something, but basically it has about 900 beds. The Children's Hospital now has about 117 beds. But if you look at the number of beds uh, in the daily census, uh, it's almost twice as high, uh, and that's because each of the beds usually has two people on a cot. It's not in a room. So you would have a con they would have a, a, a section of the ward that may have eight beds, uh, and in there there'd be 16 to 20 patients on there. And so again, it speaks to this notion of the of the, the differences between the United States and there. So this partnership began between Indiana University, Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital, and Moy University. 
Um, and it began basically as a partnership of education and training where our faculty go over there and, and start doing some teaching and round on the wards. Uh, Dr. Joe Mamlin, who was a former head of medicine, was rounding on the wards with a, with a bunch of the, the medical students there, and they, he noticed after rounds they would all flight to this one bed where there was this patient there who was dying of AIDS. And he later asked them what was going on, and he said, well, he's a fellow medical student that was suffering from AIDS. And so, so moved by this, uh, Joe ended up uh, sending messages back to the United States, and it ended up, uh, collection was made, and they got enough money uh, to treat, to get money for antiretrovirals. And so this is a picture of this man who now works at, at the medical school. And the stark contrast of the two things, just because of the introduction of antiretrovirals, transformed this program that was one with, that was led with education to one that was leading with care. And what they decided that if they could treat one person with HIV AIDS and transform it, why couldn't they do it for more people? And so this began this partnership that was focused on AIDS. This is a, a slide that uh, was uh, that, that comes from uh, 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 from the PETFAR, but basically shows you the life expectancy of people in a number of different sub-Saharan countries, and what the AIDS epidemic did for this average life expectancy. It plummeted. So by the year 2000, uh, it was strikingly bad. It was a, a horrendous crisis that was seen around the globe, and particularly in in, in sub-Saharan Africa where the HIV epidemic began. And so these guys put together this program called AMPATH, which was uh, called the Academic Model for the Prevention and Treatment of HIV AIDS. And this was a construct, as we mentioned, between Moy Teaching Referral Hospital, between uh, Moy University, and a consortium of medical schools that were led by Indiana University that basically was focusing on the HIV epidemic. And, worked not only on the, the medical aspects of it, but the social and economic aspects of it. And this consortium has a number of different institutions. It fluctuates a little bit, but around 15 to 20 different institutions from North America, and, and including the uh, uh, University of Toronto, have worked together on different aspects of this program. And, and uh, along, uh, a simple version of this is basically that all of them bring some expertise to this. For example, Duke owns, if you will, cardiology, and so they lead the cardiology efforts. Toronto looks at uh, mother and baby aspects. In the, uh, we lead the cancer component of it. But it's bringing together partners from institutions working on different aspects of it. They recognize, as you saw with that picture of the gentleman there, that it was not only antiretrovirals, but many of the patients in Western Kenya had nutritional uh, depletion. They were and, and to give them only medicines and not deal with the nutrition aspects would be wrong. And so they created farms in which they gave initially some patients a small plot of land to allow them to grow their own food that would help them. Later on, they had enough to grow for their families and sell back to the hospital. And so these are some of the farms that are there. And, and we they took patients who were basically not only nutrition depleted, but also economically depleted and created some jobs for them. For the women and widows of HIV patients, they created the Simani workshop in which they basically created jewelry and created opportunities for these people. And so at the end of the day, actually, that, that patients who had HIV in many ways were better off than the other citizens of, of, of Eldoret and, and Western Kenya who didn't have HIV because we ended up dealing with the financial aspects of their lives, the, the nutrition aspects, as well as the medicine aspects. Uh, and through this then, again, this, the aspect of the totality of medical care and, and social worked on farming, it worked on health insurance, school, education, and actually created a situation in which uh, uh, it, it, it transformed how the people of Western Kenya thought about, about, about cancer, or I'm sorry, about health care and, and, and the economic aspects of it. This is just a brief summary now of some of the accomplishments of AMPATH. Over 30,000 people uh, are fed weekly through the programs that they have. Ten tons of food are grown on these on AMPATH farms, which represents about 70% of all the, uh, the, 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 the World Food Program's contributions or Kenya are grown by the farms there, by the Kenyans themselves. We've created hospitals there for mother and baby, pediatric, and I'll talk about the cancer hospital a little bit. And we've had a strong institutional commitment from IU and other health in which there are doctors who are on ground for extended periods of time. Joe Mamlin, uh, uh, who was one of the leaders of the program, 
has just come back this week after being on ground for 16 years with his wife. So this is a strong commitment, uh, and it, again, across as many different disciplines. Uh, Eldoret, which is the center for this, is um, uh, 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 the second or third largest city in Kenya. It serves western Kenya. It's part of the Rift Valley. These are a number of the different clinics now, the outreach clinics that, are, that have been uh, uh, affected by our program. Uh, there's been over 200,000 people with HIV that are currently enrolled on therapy. Um, they curb the transmission of mother to baby transmission because of fetal transmission of HIV down to less than 4%. At one point, it was around 20 to 30%. And they've met the WHO criteria of 90, 90, 90 in many of the areas there. And we've worked on community-based programs. In terms of this, the contrast between 1990 and now, Again, in 1990, we just, you know, basically one faculty member, a few students, a few faculty members from Kenya. Uh, today, we've had over 600 North American faculty members. Over 1,000 North American students have come through this program there, and we've trained over nearly 400 patients, uh, or 400 medical students and residents. <laughs> from the research component, and the research is really the glue that brings the North American institutions there. Um, we have now accumulated over uh, $100 million in accumulated awards. We have working groups. We've created uh, uh, um, uh, IRBs that are there that are functional. We have a biorepository. Um, one of the aspects in terms that's important for global health today for us is the notion of, of uh, what are we doing here that's going to help, our, what are we doing in Africa or the low-income countries that are helping our catchment population here. So we talk about reciprocal innovation. So one of the aspects of this with all these patients that were seen throughout Western Kenya was a need to have electronic medical records. And so uh, Burke Mamlin from Indiana University created this open MRS, which has been used by Partners in Health. It's now open in, in 70 countries in which it used cloud-based tablet formation. They can do point-of-care testing of HIV, so they can go to a person's hut test them right away, and then roll them, and then this becomes part of the medical record system. They've created um, working with community health care workers where they use people who are not trained in medicine formally but now are trained in certain areas, and they go hut to hut, place to place, to talk about cancer, to talk about hypertension, diabetes, as well as cancer prevention and screening such as cervical cancer and breast cancer. As a result of the work, and I think it is important to show this is actually the curve of the line because of the investment that has been done by PETFAR and USAID in terms of now having the, the lifespan of people now coming close to what should be expected. And, and this is a triumph not only here in Kenya but also around the world, and I think it's something that we can be quite proud of as Americans. There's a lot of stuff that we aren't necessarily proud of to be American today, uh, but this is something that I think we should be extremely proud about in terms of what the the President's Emergency Fund for, for AIDS Research accomplished in terms of the investment, in terms of the number of people that have, lives that have been changed, the number of people, uh, I have to apologize here. I'm going to break for a moment here for a regularly scheduled program because I need to wear my glasses here. <laughs> you can see it, but I can't, so I'm putting on my Harry Potter glasses here as we do this. So, you know, in terms of the number of people who are diagnosed with HIV who are on treatment, uh, including the women and children that are involved with this, it really is quite extraordinary of what our country has done to help people around the globe with this. But what I'd like to do is actually, because I'm a cancer center director and cancer is what I do for a living, is turn the conversation a little bit and talk about the other epidemic that's going on in, in cancer. In low-income countries, cancer is now the leading cause or the second leading cause of death, um, and it has emerged as another epidemic. Many of the cancers that are seen in these countries are preventable, and we'll talk about a couple of them in the future. But even if they were, the, the cancer workforce is just poorly equipped to deal with this. Uh, and we have to attack it the same way that we did with HIV-AIDS. Um, in terms of the number of cancers, about 80% of the new cancers in the world are going to occur in the low- to middle-income countries. So this is a crisis that's a global proportion that really deserves our attention just as much as the HIV uh, epidemic did. While our, our, our cure rate is, is actually uh, improving significantly in our countries and, and the upper-income countries, it is still going, the, 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 the rate of death is still disproportionately high in these countries. 
Examples of this are here. So in, as, as Steve mentioned, in terms of testis cancer, at Indiana University, I was fortunate to work with Larry Einhorn, who is, uh, if you will, the, the father, one of the fathers or grandfathers of oncology. When uh, he started in this in 1974, the, the, the cure rate for testis cancer was 5%. And through a series of randomized trials that have been conducted today, 95% of all patients with testis cancer should be cured of this disease. And this is what we see in the bottom right here in terms of the death rate, 5%. But if we take that same patient through an accident of birth who's, who's born in a low-income country, the fatality rate now is around 40, 40%. Similarly, we can take breast cancer, um, in which in our country now about 80 to 85 percent of women with breast cancer are going to be cured. It is the majority of patients with breast cancer in other countries who die. And similar stories can be done with cervical cancer across the board. And so this underscores the fact that, the, that it is possible, we know it's possible to cure many of these cancers, but yet it is not possible in, in the way it stands in these countries because of access to care. Adding to the burden is that looking at children. Um, it's estimated that over 300,000 children globally will come down with cancer, and a third of them are living in sub-Saharan Africa. And look at these numbers here. If you think about a child here in the United States who has diagnosed with cancer, 80% of, of the, the children here in this country are going to be cured from their cancer. If you go, again, through another continent across the ocean, 90% of them are expected to die from this cancer. And this is something, again, that it calls us to arms to make a difference here. This is a, a map that uh, Dr. Clement M. Duayo gave me from University of Maryland. And it basically, it's one of the, I'm not sure what you call these maps. Help me with this. Somebody ought to help me. <laughs> Anyhow, it's a, what is it? A new age. A new age map. <laughs> that, that'll be good, yeah. The, um, but basically, the, the size of the country depends on the numbers there. And so if you look at the, in terms of the bottom part, which is the most important part, the physicians per population, you can see American looks a little bloated there, if you will. And then if you look at Africa, if you can see it, it really is, is a, a thin line in terms of the number of physicians per population. So again, this speaks to the fact that as much as we do in terms of medicines and everything else we have to do with cancer, uh, if you don't have physicians and healthcare professionals to take care of it, it doesn't get to the patients there. Uh, several years ago, I had the privilege of uh, a program at ASCO um, called the Leadership Development Program. And, and the first project we did, uh, we segregated uh, junior faculty from around the United States together. And we had four people that worked on our program here, including Joythi Patel, Matt Galski, uh, Anish Shagpar. And we worked on this notion of, of what, what ASCO should be involved with in low to middle income countries. And, Basically, the paper came down in terms of the, the barriers to cancer control include a lack of infrastructure, a poorly trained and limited workforce, the patient care cost, insufficient palliative care, and education deficits. Now, this education deficits also apply to the patients themselves who have different perspectives of why they're getting cancer. And so basically, this creates, if you will, a white paper of where we need to be going in terms of making a difference in, in, in global oncology. So uh, I wanted to talk to you at least about the beginning now of the ANTHPATH uh, oncology. So several years ago as division head, I was trying to recruit a faculty member to Indiana University who was doing work with Epstein-Barr virus. He came from Ohio State. And I brought him to dinner with Bob Einschurz, one of the founders of ANTHPATH. And we talked about the fact that you know, this Kenya program would be a great laboratory to do work with EBV and, and Burkitt's lymphoma and, and many other cancers. Uh, Bob pulls out this picture of a young boy with Burkitt's lymphoma that he carries with him to this day. Uh, and he's, a, he's an internist, and he was talking about the frustration he has that he was seeing so many of these kids with this. So at the end of this uh, uh, dinner, it was, it, it was either a success or a total failure. The success part was that I got incredibly involved with uh, uh, the notion that I needed to go over there and take a look at this. The failure was this guy blew off and stayed at Ohio State. We never got him. Um, but it, it was it got me over there to take a look at this, and and the cancer care structure in Ohio, in Kenya, around uh, the late 1990s when I first went, there was no cancer registry there. There was no national screening going on. They had two cobalt units that were in Nairobi, uh, and one of them actually was broken; it didn't work. They had three or four, if you will, so-called oncologists in the country that really had no formal training. They had some radiation oncologists in Nairobi. It was really 
pathetic. On my first visit here, these were two pictures that I took of patients I saw uh, in the clinic there. The, the, uh, and I guess I'll, who's, where are the fellows here? Are you going to even admit being a fellow? Come on. Are there medical students? Anybody less than 30? Five. Fifty. All right. So what do these patients have in common? I'm going to pause and take a drink while you think about this. It's okay to say the wrong thing. Take a guess. So someone said cancer? That's okay. That's a good one. <laughs> Anything else? Well, the main thing, they both had cancer, and uh, they both, um, what they had in common, they presented with late-stage disease, uh, and they both had the wrong diagnosis. The pathologist there um, uh, called this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in both cases. Now, you don't have to be a pathologist, again, in my world, to know this isn't non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. In fact, the one on the, the patient on the left with the arm lesion happened to bring an x-ray, and I held it up to the, the light there. I took a picture of it. I won't show it, but you could see a Codman's triangle there. And so, you know, based on this old-fashioned clinician point of view, this was a patient who had an osteogenic sarcoma. Indeed, we did an amputation, and that's what he had. This other woman obviously had a breast cancer, and, and it was in the start of an auto-amputation. But it brings to mind that, again, wherever you are, even in this country, you're so dependent on your pathologist. If the pathologist tells you one thing, uh, you have to have clinical judgment to think that maybe the pathologist isn't right, and they didn't have that there. This was where they gave chemotherapy in this tent in one of the outreach clinics, and, and <clears throat> there's a basket there in which, uh, which you can't really appreciate, and, and below the basket by the, uh, the fellow with the white coat is a little white thing here. Basically, they would be giving the patients chemotherapy and throwing the needles and the syringes on the ground, after the clinic was done, they would collect it and put it in the basket. Where they disposed it, I don't know, uh, but this was basically uh, what they did. So somebody earlier today, back then, they also, in terms of a uh, access to drugs, many times the patients uh, would be given a prescription for drugs for, say they gave them uh, cytoxin, adromycin, vincristine, prednisone for a lymphoma. They would go to the local pharmacist who may only have 5-FU, so they would get the 5-FU, and it's no wonder that the outcomes of care was, was really quite poor. So we, we created, AMPATH changed its notion. Instead of being the academic model for, uh, around, centered around HIV AIDS, it became more of a population health, providing access to health care. Again, building clinical research, basic research, and the capacity there. So this AMPATH program then evolved, and many around, it circled around our work in, in, in cancer. Uh, we, we've had our first hood for administering, preparing chemotherapy that was in Kenya. Uh, we had the, uh, we actually, we thought this was a huge advance in which we had outside the building a more formal tent structure. Uh, we started using gloves and gowns for giving chemotherapy. Um, when we first started this, I'm sorry, um, patients didn't get, typically get biopsied for cancer. They would look at a lesion and it looked like a sarcoma, so we would think that's what it is. If they did do biopsies, it may take up to two months to get a result of a biopsy. We did a pap smear uh, a cervical cancer screening program. It was a year later, and they still hadn't read the pap smears. They had no functional tumor registry. Um, what we now have done because of the evolution of this is that we, pathology is now an accepted standard. So everyone gets it. Usually they get the results within a couple weeks. Uh, they have some basic immunostaining that's done, and they have an up-to-date population registry. Uh, where we saw a few hundred cancer patients a, 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 a year. We're now up to close to 10,000 patients a year at this program. Um, when we first started, uh, no one really had access to chemotherapy, and through our work, uh, now everyone has the ability of getting chemotherapy regardless of their ability to pay. Uh, we're screening about 1,000 patients a month for cervical and breast cancer. Um, uh, for the old-time oncologist in the room, which is probably just me, um, um, there are many drugs that are available, like cytoxin, vincristine, adromycin, that were around in the 1970s and 80s that became the staple of what we think is important for cancer care. Today we have drugs, including checkpoint inhibitors, that cost several hundred thousand dollars. We have uh, Avastin, which adds to some of the therapy. But when you think about it, if you're going to put together a doctor's bag of important drugs, 
Many of these targeted drugs, you probably wouldn't slip into that bag. You'd really use some of the old ones. And so they, they have been able to have the access to the essential drugs are important. And Larry Shulman, uh, and together with a number of other us, put together this list of essential drugs for cancer. But it's important to realize that many of these are generic drugs, and if we can get these drugs to the patients, we can make a big difference. Uh, the access to care, we've created outreach clinics in a number of different sites, and, and we're enabled actually to do flow cytometry and do a lot of other work here. I do want to uh, talk a little bit about the importance of training, and, and particularly um, with on the surgical oncology side of things. Um, when we first came there, there was really, the, and today, one of the leading causes of death is cervical cancer today. They had never done a hysterectomy. They didn't know how to do these surgery. Dr. Barry Rosen from Princess Margaret Hospital, who's now at Beaumont Hospital, created a training program in which they had several of the uh, uh, surgeons, OB, the OB-GYN people, went up to Princess Margaret. Barry came down there, and they created this training program there. And we eventually led to the country's first gyne curriculum, gyne oncology curriculum, in which they've had about five graduates now. Uh, we've created a U54 screening. And today, as I mentioned, over 1,000 women a month, it's closer to 2,000 a month are screened for cervical cancer. Uh, this is a picture. Barry Rosen is the uh, Mzungu, who is uh, uh, basically the guy in the middle who doesn't look like he's African. Uh, together with, then this is a picture of the first uh, abdominal hysterectomy done for cervical cancer. And they've done about 300 of them now in the last several years because of their work there. It's really been quite extraordinary, and as a result of that, we also have the U54. As I mentioned to you, we had that tunnel there with the tent, uh, and through philanthropy, we were able to generate uh, money to build this $5.5 million cancer and chronic care building which has four vaults for radiation. We still have yet to have the radiation there. Um, we're seeing over 900 patients a month. Over 60,000 women have been screened. We have actually trained 10 new medical oncologists, pediatric and gynecologists oncologists that now work there. We have the first in-country uh, uh, curriculum for degrees for gynecology, oncology, medical oncology, nursing oncology, and pediatric oncology just opened up this month. We've had some D43s. And we've had a number of different research grants that we've had uh, through the NIH mechanism, but also through industry. Eli Lilly, Celgene, uh, Novartis uh, have been incredibly generous with their support of some of our activities there. Uh, one area that I, that I want to bring up that's worth bringing up is, is some of the supply chain, as I mentioned about drugs. And, and if we think about uh, what are the issues in, in Kenya particularly, it's availability, uh, it's accountability and adherence. The availability is that many places they don't have access to the drugs. The accountability, up 30 to 50% of the drugs that may be coming to the low income countries may be counterfeit. And how do you tell? Uh, for example, if you've got advanced cancer and you're given a drug and the patient doesn't respond, is it because the drug is bad or is it because their cancer is bad? And so it's really ripe for the, the process of corruption in there. Uh, and then adherence. Uh, depending on what's going on, adherence can be bad. And part of the aspects that we've done in, in childhood Burkitt's lymphoma is actually probably this transportation is an issue. So these, they're coming here to get therapy every three weeks, and they don't have transportation. They may have to go on a bus to get there. So our most recent grant we have through the NCI, through a supplement, is basically just giving them a small stipend. And with that, our, our one-year survival Burkitt's have gone from 5% up to over 50% just by having the patients having the availability of coming here. I wanted to talk a little bit about this availability in terms of what we've done. So you've got a patient who's sick, they come to the health facility, patient sees them, they get a prescription, they go to the pharmacy, and there's a chance that the, the drugs aren't even there in the pharmacy, okay? It's frustrating, as I mentioned before. Um, and when they go to a commercial pharmacy, they get charged 10 times the, the right and recognizing that some of them are counterfeit. So one of the things they built is this revolving fund pharmacy, which has uh, been a tremendous asset for, for asset for Ampath and for our program. So what it is is basically this revolving fund pharmacy takes money from the patients. They charge them about 10% higher than the conventional <laughs> drugs, but they always have drugs in supply. And so the difference in that money, that 10%, allows us actually to purchase more drugs and allows us to have access to care. This other thing I think is really pretty cool, uh, and this has to do with counterfeit drugs and working with our engineers. You guys have a tremendous co collaboration with engineers and this power of thinking about this. We've worked with uh, 
uh, pharmacists at Notre Dame as well as Purdue. Uh, and, and basically, this little filter paper, I'm going to bear with me a moment here. Look at this. This is like high school, okay, a visual aid. So basically, this little filter paper thing, as we see here, uh, what one can do is actually take some of the powder drug, put it on the bottom there, and dip this in saline for a, a minute or two. And then what it does is it gives you a paper chromatography, and you're able actually to look for counterfeit drugs based on this little simple thing. This costs 25 cents. So they've done this for malarials and antiretrovirals. We now have, we're now actually in the, uh, the final stages of, of doing a similar thing for some of the chemotherapy drugs. And I think this, again, this will allow us actually to be able to look at things you know, quite simply in a, cheap, in a cheap way. This is a U54 project, which I'm a, a co-investigator on, which are looking at, at women in sub-Saharan Africa who are HIV positive and HIV negative and looking at the impact of HPV. If, uh, and basically there's several hundred different types of HPV and, and there's a group of them that are oncogenic, high-risk HPV that are causing cancer. In this country, it's 16 and 18, the most common causes. But what is it in sub-Saharan Africa? And, and actually measuring it at one point in time, uh, if we measure it again in six months or a year or two years later, does it still stay the same? And so what we're doing is a longitudinal study of looking at HPV viruses and HIV negative and HIV positive women. What we have found is that this oncogenic type of HPV is twice as common in patients with HIV compared to those without it. Uh, and so that may explain why cervical cancer is a much higher disease burden in those with their HIV positive. Um, the other aspect that's unique that we, that we have an ASCO abstract that's coming out that I'll just share with you as a private note is that um, uh, it turns out, remember aflatoxin? You ever hear that? And so when you think about aflatoxin, the old people, you think of? Mushrooms. Mushrooms, do you? Okay, interesting. <laughs> This is, uh, so when you think about pizza, what do you think about? Mushrooms. I'm sorry, I was just trying to do this Rorschach test because everything may make you think about mushrooms. I just, uh, but, but, but there is an associated aflatoxin in hepatomas and, and liver cancer, and it's been known. Um, and and uh, most of the time you think about peanuts causing this thing. So it's caused by aspergillus, and, and actually it is in the maize and corn, and particularly for these farmers when the income is poor, they're storing this corn longer and longer, trying to get rid of it. So um, uh, we ended up actually taking some of the serum of our HIV-negative women and sending it to an investigator at Hopkins, and it turns out that 57% of them, of the women who are HIV-negative, have aflatoxin in their blood. Interesting. Well, I think another interesting point is that if you look at those people who have aflatoxin in their blood, they have twice the incidence of, HIV, of uh, HPV, oncogenic type HPV in there uh, in terms of what we're finding. So aflatoxin actually has the same kind of immunosuppression, if you will, as HIV does. And it may explain in why patients with KS are much more common in Kenya, despite the fact uh, that they have on antiretrovirals. But it allows us, again, to look at the factors and things, and again, this cross-cultural sensitivity. We have worked together because of the programs that we've developed in this partnership with a number of institutions and working with the Kenyan government. Uh, we have uh, basically developed national cancer guidelines. The, the Kenya Ministry of Health has established the, uh, a national health insurance fund, which I'll show on a slide there. But we, we recognize that there was a number of other participants in the cancer community in Kenya that allows us actually to grow. And this was a paper that was just published recently. In 2016, on, cancer, on World Cancer Day, it was announced basically that the National Hospital Insurance Fund now would cover for cancer care, which was huge. And so now patients, uh, there's a three-month lag period, and what we do many times is actually try to pay for their insurance ahead of time. But we're now actually covering costs for that, and it really makes a big difference. This is a, a picture of Francis Collins and Roger Glass, who are visiting our program in Kenya. Uh, that little thing in the left there that kind of floated up was this same cancer sheet here. Francis was like a kid. He was taking pictures of the pharmacists and the wards. But at, at lunchtime, this is the comment he made, basically understanding what AMPATH is about and what we're trying to do, and basically seeing that the epicenter of medicine in the world is here in Eldoret, what they're trying to do in terms of looking at population health and trying to make a difference. And I think, again, it speaks to, to what we can do in global oncology. So what is the future of global oncology? Well, this is from uh, Roger Glass. 
in terms of why should global oncology be a field? Well, if you think about global health, it's the globalization of scientific discovery. Uh, it's important when you do research is to do the research where the problems exist. Uh, parenthetically, I got a little time here. I'll tell one other little story. Um, that, um, any engineers in the audience here? Okay, well, I'm an engineer, so I can allow to raise my hand. Um, but in terms of social engineering, it was, uh, uh, there was an issue that was in Lancet Oncology a couple years ago about the notion of, of trying to be creative with engineering. And so one of the issues in, in Sub-Saharan Africa is water supply and having poor water. And so, you know, drilling water, it's drilling wells deep down in there. And they basically came up with this kind of really a cool idea of creating a merry-go-round. Remember though, you guys, anybody remember merry-go-rounds? Is anybody awake? <laughs> okay, so we got some merry-go-rounds. It's, uh, uh, and, and so the, the idea was to create a merry-go-round so the kids would be going around in a circle and that would serve as a pump that would bring water up. It was really pretty cool. Neat idea, huh? And uh, uh, so they were so excited about it. They did this, got rid of the old wells and put this merry-go-round in there. Well, um, just as an aside, kids in Kenya don't play on merry-go-rounds. <laughs> it's not something that, you know, it's, it's, you think it's a cool idea. And so what happened is that it wasn't used. They had torn up the other wells, and, and it really actually was a failure. So um, what, again, from my perspective, and when I talk to our, our colleagues at Purdue, it's important, again, we talked about this word listen. It's important to be on ground and to be there and to really watch and listen, rather than come up with your idea here in the States with a great invention and bring it there and hope that they'll adapt to it. So if you want to do research, you want to find out where the problems are and try to work with them. Um, we want in global oncology leverage the already existing collaborations that are very strong in HIV AIDS. And, and again, many of the, because they're controlling this, the AIDS malignancies are coming up and, and so it gives us an opportunity to leverage what, what's been going on there. Um, I th again, I think you look at the Gates Foundation who focuses mostly on communicable diseases. There's an opportunities now to look very strongly on non-communicable diseases. As we're taking care of the infections, um, just as we did in the early, uh, in the very early 20th century in which people didn't live beyond the age of 50 or so because of infections, we now know that patients can live closer to 80. The same thing is going to happen in these countries with the control of infections, with HIV, with malaria control, they're living longer and as a result are coming down with the non-communicable chronic diseases. The other thing that's really important, uh, particularly with this uh, bi-country innovation, is that there's no country that has a monopoly on smart people. Uh, there are some really brilliant people in these countries uh, that we need to tap into their uh, insight and intuition to help work with this. So these are all lessons from Roger Glass. If we look at the, the federal expenditure on health care, uh, and this is, uh, again, I was talking earlier today about the Dartmouth Research Institute, who have really been at the forefront of looking at the economics of health care. Well, we know, we, we are, everyone in this room knows how much money we spend disproportionate health care compared to the rest of the world. The purple part is, uh, uh, I don't know what it means, but it means that we're spending a lot of money. Uh, and, and if we look at the rest of the world, they don't spend as much money. There are lessons to be learned uh, in areas of the low income country where we have to figure out ways to deliver health care in a much cheaper, more efficient way. And those lessons actually can inform us of what we can do here in this country. So I think that's another, again, bullet point of why it's important for global oncology. ASCO uh, put together a survey of cancer centers that will be published uh, uh, soon in the Journal of Global Oncology. They sent a survey to seven institutions uh, about a year or so ago. These are a list of the institutions there. Uh, they asked the trainees uh, about their interest in global oncology, and ba basically almost all of them had some interest in global oncology, and it, in, it spanned all the disciplines from surgical oncology to medical oncology to pediatric oncology. That these are areas for as clinicians, we want there's the young population wants to get involved in global health. I think it's our responsibility to try to find the platforms to this to make sure there's avenues for them. As I think about oncology, whether it's here in this country or globally, uh, this is really the areas of where we need to do our work. Uh, there is the pre-morbid condition, uh, which may be a situation before they have cancer. It may be in this country obesity. It may be the fact that there's uh, smoking and maybe access to care. There's cancer prevention that we can involve with. There's screening and early detection. 
treatment and palliative care in which we spend the bulk of our money in this country on survivorship and then finally health care policy. How can we change things? <clears throat> so as we think about these aspects, health care policy then uh, involves in terms of helping to develop situations that will improve the pre-morbid condition. And this is how we get better as a society. When we think now about cancer and, and uh, what we can do in terms of the glue of global health, it really spans the spectrum from patient care to education and research. Uh, so when I think about international partnerships, um, there are basically three ways that you can lead. Uh, you can lead with education, um, students from one place, doctors coming from one country to another, and that's fine. It's really good. You can lead with research in which, uh, again, we have a partner in another country and we go over there and collect breast cancer samples or Kaposi sarcoma samples and we put them in a box and bring them back over here where we do the genomics. <clears throat> we get a wonderful paper, particularly if we describe you know, some differences there. Uh, or the last way, which is a little bit harder, uh, is leading with care. Uh, the tagline for AMPATH is to lead with care. And, and, I, and I propose to you that I think this is the best way of creating a sustainable system to make a difference. Uh, if you lead with care, with the notion that we are seeing patients in this other country, and what can we do to increase the workforce capacity, which includes Developing them as clinicians, but also as researchers and as, uh, and as teachers, <clears throat> we actually allow them to build up a larger and larger workforce that will be self-sustainable and make a difference. And the result, we'll have partners that are going to work with us in many different areas. So as I close on this, uh, you know, one of the things that, that are asked is what makes AMPATH, what we've done special. The, um, I'm not sure how it is for you, but everyone in the room, when you hear a beeper go off, you always wonder if it's you. Um, it wasn't. Um, but what makes AMPATH special? And I think uh, part of it is not that it is an IU-led program or North America. It really is through Kenyan leadership. We go there as advisors to listen to them, to help advise them, and come up with programs. It's clear that we, we have seen the possible, and we're allowed then to create the conversation but if it's going to be sustainable, if we're, we want to be able to leave at some point in time and have the Kenyan leadership take over. It's also, I think, uh, unique in that this is a multi-institutional program that has international collaborations. So it's not just, for example, Indian University working with an investigator in Kenya. This is 15 to 18 different institutions in path pertains to oncology, six different institutions that are involved with it and in which we are working in a partnership with the the, the the shared goal of making a difference in a healthcare system. Uh, it is owned by the institution. Uh, through our efforts in AMPATH, we now have a department of oncology that is now in the hospital that didn't exist before we were there because they now realize the importance of it. And they are now involved, invested in terms of medical officers and, and faculty. It's transdisciplinary. It's not just medical oncology and, and uh, uh, radiation oncology and surgery we start thinking about other disciplines, which include um, efforts in cancer prevention, includes engineering, it includes ethicists, includes uh, working with primary care doctors to work out in the community. It's important because it's sustainable. This program in AMPATH has now been going on close to 30 years. Uh, and and uh, it, I'm not sure it could have gotten started today the way it did then because the Department of Medicine invested a lot of money into this. Uh, but it, it is important if you're going to do this kind of work that you're going to be in it for five to ten years, not for a year or six months. Um, we think it's important right now uh, from our program is to have a long-term embedding. Uh, we've done these partnerships going back and forth, but to be able to have faculty where they're full-time working with them creates a trust. Uh, and if there's an um, issue, I'm going to it right away rather than waiting for a conference call a month or two later. The linkage with HIV-AIDS, I think, is critically important because that infrastructure has already been done and the trust there to show the difference there. And I think, finally, I think uh, it, it's really important that we, the academic part of the academic model has a tripartite mission at every academic institution. It, it's, it's clinical care service. It's, it's research and education. And I think if you embrace all three of these uh, as an important part of what you do globally, it, it, again, it will make a sustainable program. Uh, if any of you are interested in reading more about uh, AMPATH, this is a book that was written by Frank Quigley, taken from a Swahili proverb. 
uh, basically walking together, walking far. And the proverb, I'll get it wrong, but basically, if you want to go someplace fast, you walk alone. If you want to go someplace far, you walk together. Uh, this is Natali Busakala, who is the first director of the, of the, uh, the Kenyan director of the, the Department of Medical Oncology. And I'll, I'll close with this quote uh, from Bob Einchers, who's the co-founder of PAMPATH. And I think it's, uh, I like it a lot in terms of what this is all about. He said, what he wants to do is to create a space to dream, to risk, to fail, and to dream again. And if we can do that collaboratively, when there's no ego that's on trial, we just might change the world for the better. And I think, uh, again, the work that you are doing in global health, the work that we're doing, again, if we collaborate, we really can make a difference. Uh, I, again, I, I want to thank you. These are the acknowledgments of the various different institutions that have worked with us on, on global oncology and a number of different companies and, and uh, agencies that has helped with this funding. So I'll stop there and be happy to, to address any questions you might have. Thank you. Yes. Has the change in outcome of treatment like this improved or changed the general population's perspectives and actions towards earlier diagnosis acting on if they're not really good at getting to the system? But I'm expecting that a lot of the patients through this are later stage because yes. of the lack of early diagnosis, but then you have access, you have logistics, all those yeah. things. Yes. That yeah, it's, yeah, I would love to, I think it has, and I would love to tell you that there is a difference. It's clear that we're getting women, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago I met with a bunch of nursing nurses uh, in a room, and I asked them if any of them had ever had a pap smear or ever been, uh, and they, none of them had. They, they um, said that they don't even have a word for that in Swahili, they just called it down under, uh, which is an Australian term. I, but but um, but through that now, so the nursing staff wasn't even involved with cancer with cervical cancer screening, and now again we've got sixty thousand women who have been screened. So that is a message right there that they're getting the, that they understand that um, we still are seeing far too many people with advanced disease. Uh, and again, just there a couple of weeks ago. It, it, it kills you that they're coming in with more advanced disease uh, still. Um, but it is critically important um, that the infrastructure for treatment is built. Uh, if you do, um, when we first talked about cervical cancer screening, if you didn't have gynae oncology and you'd get an early diagnosis of cervical cancer and yet you uh, what message did that go on to the, you know, back to the villages that, yes, you know, my, my wife or my daughter or my sister was doing fine. They got diagnosed with cancer, and then she died a few months later, you know, that these white men didn't do much for them, if you will. So it's really important to get this treatment part done, and the more we do this, the more likelihood that we'll be able to get earlier diagnosis. Uh, I'm old enough uh, uh, to remember... Uh, women in the 1960s and 70s who came in with very advanced breast cancer. And for those of you who do breast cancer for a living, uh, you may not, you know, you, you probably have stories of this. But women came in with huge masses, uh, not unlike what we see now, because what they were told when they went to surgery with a lump in their breast that they may wake up with a modified or a radical mastectomy in their chest. They wouldn't know before surgery whether or not they were going to wake up with this big, cave on their chest. And so they were afraid of cancer. And as time moved on, and particularly the work of Bernie Fisher, showing that you can do lumpectomies and spare this, it really changed. So the treatment pattern allowed us and allowed women to come in for earlier treatment. And as you know, in this country now, even with tiny little spots on a mammogram, they're coming in and get treated. So we, you've got to go through that process, I think, in these countries to get the trust to get people. And then the more patients you have that survive from colon cancer, breast cancer, they're going to send their friends and relatives in there. So but uh, uh, I think we're making a difference, but that one's hard to measure. It's a long-winded answer. Other questions from this side of the room? Okay, you can, yes. Uh, very fascinating presentation. I guess two short questions. One is, uh, 
this outstanding program has developed. It is still um, expanding. I mean, I know of a couple of hospitals in Western Canada that could really benefit from this, but have no contact at all. And the second one is, uh, you send a number of residents, physicians there. Do you have a reverse program, a scholarship program, that would bring promising young Kenyan doctors to the United States? Yeah, and so um, the answer is uh, yes and no. Uh, um, so the, the part of the, 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 the trans-global stuff, was, so our, we do have residents that go over there, and occasionally a fellow will go over there. I'd really, I need to develop that training program for our fellows to go over there, and I, and I really would like to have all of us uh, sort out a way to have a, uh, for all cancer centers to have fellowships in global oncology and that we have a common training program that we can do. Having the people come over here becomes a bit problematic in our state, in which we have. Chite Aswara is a Kenyan who um, is on ground now for five years. He's a Kenyan, uh, did his medical oncology fellowship with us, and I was able then to support him as an IU faculty member in Kenya. So he's, <clears throat> he's African, Kenyan, and board there. Um, it is really hard, people may disagree, but it's really hard if you're coming from a poor country and get your training here in the United States and get board certified to go back to a country again where you can make this amount of money here and actually send money back to your family overseas uh, and go back to that country. So what we want to do is to create an environment that makes it worthwhile coming back. So you're not a lone oncologist going back to a rural village in western Uganda, but if you're now part of a family of research, it makes it easier to go back. You've got a support system. <clears throat> uh, the problem we have in a state, at least in our state, is um, when you come from another country, uh, you, can't, you can't really t touch patients. There's a patient care thing. And so I don't know how it is, uh, you know, in surgery, whether it, if you had someone. But, you know, they can come and observe surgery, uh, which I think is okay, but they can't really get in there to do it. And similarly, if we go over there, we really aren't supposed to be involved with the patient care part too. But I think we've got to work on some reciprocal agreement to be able to allow them to have more hands-on training here. A little bit easier medical oncology because we can sit and talk, and, but, but I think that's an aspect of training that's, that's uh, unique. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, again, the partnerships, again, I'm sure Bob and the rest of you would be happy to explore that. <clears throat> but one of the, they, they have a, uh, and they may already be part of a network that's including that. Uh, what we like to do on the North American side is to make sure that every student that goes over there is part of a program of AMPATH so you aren't going over just as a student coming over, they're coming over with a faculty member from that institution so that they serve as their mentor when they're, so that's why having a, 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 um, a more uh, established membership in the AMPATH program allows you to come over there and have students there. That makes sense? Yes? Thanks for your talk, Patrick. Sure. Um, I know it was just an hour. You didn't mention telemedicine. Are you using that at all with your yeah, so we've created, a, through Pfizer actually created a telemedicine program, and, and so each week we have a, a tumor board in which they <laughs> present cases to this tumor board, and uh, um, uh, we review, uh, uh, again, we review these cases. It is not as good as I would like it to be. They have their telemedicine at 8 o'clock on Monday mornings, which means that if I wanted to participate here in North America, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and I, my enthusiasm would be there for a week. Uh, and then the next week, you know, I'll, I'll be busy. What I'd like to do, and we're working with uh, the roast things, there's a Pinterest, I don't know Pinterest. Do you know Pinterest? Okay. Does any guy in the room know anything about Pinterest? Not to be, but it's, I don't, yeah, I, I just found out about it, but we're trying to create a, uh, I th what we'd like to do is to create an ability to do a tumor board in which the pathologists, the radiation oncologists can basically pin their different aspects to a tumor board-like presentation and then what I would like, if we have that ahead of time, that the North Americans can create a, a, a statement of what they think could be done. So they'll do the tumor board, present it there, and then they can have their discussion, and then they can now click, okay, what do our North American colleagues think about it, and they can give their, and that would allow the time differences to be there. Um, I've, you know, also uh, opportunities to share among other uh, people in the same time zone in Africa, so there's cross-cross fertilization, particularly among these U54 institutions. Um, but I, I think it would be a, a great opportunity. We've got one minute. Yeah, that's the Project Echoes. I think yeah, the Echoes. Yeah, Project Echoes is a great opportunity to, to look at avenues of uh, 
uh, communications between the, you know, learn from the community healthcare workers how to do things. Great. Well, thank you again, Patrick. Sure. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he was Damien, and I was inspired to be